Okay, guys, this is a big day. Uh, we are Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. It is the end of the Acts series. Can you believe it? Have you forgotten a time when we weren't in Acts? Uh, the, the funny thing is, uh, is that, you know, it's like with um, athletes, when they're late in their career, you know, last couple of years of Kobe's career, you're talking about how he's playing that year, but once he retired, you, what, what do all the sports reporters do? They, they look at the entire career when you reach the end, right? When you reach the end, you're invited to look back over the whole thing. And, and that, that's the case with Acts 28, 17 through 31, is that as we're reaching the very end of Acts, it invites us to look back over the entire journey, not just of Acts, but all the way back to the beginning of Luke, because Luke and Acts form one literary unit. They are, they are to the same person, Theophilus, by the same writer, about the same stuff. So let's read the Word of God, uh, Acts 28, 17 through 31. It says, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would catch the vision of your word today, that we would see the direction which it points us as your people, that we would be open-hearted, that we would have our eyes opened, that we would turn and you would heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the little town of um, Orban, Scotland, there's a huge tower that dominates the town. I have a picture of it for you so you can envision it. And you look at that and you say, that looks Roman, doesn't it? But you history nerds know the Romans never went to Scotland. So this is not a Roman tower. This was built by a guy guy named John Stuart McCaig, properly pronounced McCaig. 
who was a wealthy banker from this town. And, uh, and as he was getting on in life, right, he was kind of this benefactor guy. He wanted to build a tower. Now, it, it, it was based on the Roman Colosseum, and, it, and in the middle, it had another tower with a museum inside of it. And inside of that museum, was to, it was to feature statues and pictures of John Stuart McCaig, <laughs> so that it would serve as a monument to himself and his descendants. Now, the locals in Orban have a different name for it than McCaig's Tower, or McCaig's Tower. They call it McCaig's Folly. Here's why. He died before it was completed, and even though he left money for its completion, his kids immediately started feuding over the money, and it was never finished. So it's only the walls. It's completely hollow inside. That's perhaps a better monument, isn't it? Because <laughs> the thing is, there's two fundamental ways to exist in the world. One is to seek to build our own kingdom. That all of our efforts, that all of our resources, that all of our desire and passion is directed at one goal, me. Where do I learn what's right and wrong from myself? Where do I get my values? It's from me. What's all my effort for? It's so that I can have the nicest life I can have. And that includes other people. You're going to make my life nicer. Right? That, that's, that's, that's one way to lean into the world, to build our own kingdoms. But the thing is, is like McCaig's folly, you're going to find out that to build one's own kingdom is to build maybe something big, maybe something impressive, but something very hollow. There's nothing inside of it. It's all, it's all facade. And here's the thing. You might be a professing Christian and still leaning into existence with the goal of building your own kingdom. And you understand God to be there to kind of assist you in building your own kingdom. Boy, do you hit knees when you need something. You need this resource. You need this job, right? And, and that's all we think about with our relationship with God is God helps me to build my own kingdom. God helps my life to go right. And we don't think about the other way to lean into existence. And it's the way of, of, of existing in the world that we're called to at the end of the book of Acts here and by the entire book of Acts. It is to accept the invitation to Christ's kingdom. Where do I see that in the text? Well, did you notice that when we were reading through the text in verse 23, Paul, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning until evening. He expounded to them, testifying to what? The kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Paul spent an entire day trying to convince the Jewish leaders of Rome that Jesus was building a kingdom. And then again, look at the very end at verse 30. It says, Paul, he, he lived there in Rome at, in two, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to use a little imagination. Remember that there was an immediate audience for this. 
the, the, they're, they're, we're going to talk about three people, an ancient Jew, an ancient Gentile, and the person who's named Theophilus, all right? So if you're an ancient Jew, and you're listening to the book of Acts being read, or you're reading it yourself, and you come across Paul's encounter with the Jewish leaders in Rome, and he quotes Isaiah to them, what is the saying, you know, like, hey, open your eyes, turn and be healed? What's the message to you? It's to accept the invitation into Christ's kingdom. Don't miss it, right? If you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you come to the end of Acts, you hear this in verse 28. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And the question to you is, are you going to? Are you going to listen? Are you going to hear the call to Christ's kingdom? And then if you're Theophilus, who we know was a Roman noble, right? Think of this guy. What's a Roman noble like? Top of their society, rich, reputable, powerful. What's he just read a story about? Paul, who was a, had a privileged position in society and threw it all in the toilet for the kingdom of God, and he ends up in chains. The call to Theophilus is lay down building your own kingdom, buddy. Choose poverty instead of wealth. Choose powerlessness and persecution instead of privilege and power, right? Why? Why would he do that? Why would anybody? The reason is that Christ's kingdom gives us truth, connection, and telos. I'm going to explain all of those things. But these are, the, these are some of the main themes of Acts. First of all, Christ's kingdom gives us truth. When we look all the way back at Luke, we don't have this in the, in the screen, so just listen. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I really should get a bookmark. Luke writing to Theophilus, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, we went over this. There is, a, there is an idea out there that I disagree with. It's the idea that the Bible contain, contains truth, not fact. Luke would have something to say about that. Because he's writing to a Roman noble... He's writing a history, an ancient history, to a Roman noble who had very high expectations that everything reported would be absolutely accurate. And along this sermon series, we have checked in from time to time on how Luke does as a historian. And he is nitpicky about getting details in local towns right. You know, like when there's a, a name for a local magistrate in Asia Minor, and it's, it's this town, not that town, they call it. A, he gets it right. Everywhere we can check Luke's work, he comes out aces. What Luke is trying, what the Word of God is giving us when we read Acts and Luke is something that is, first of all, real. It's not just spiritually true, but actually true, right? I mean, th think about the alternative. If Luke is saying, hey, I'm writing an orderly account, that means this is accurate. Take it to the bank. We can either believe that Luke was telling the truth to the best of his knowledge, or that he was lying. And he wrote this entire thing Luke acts like to play a trick on somebody. It would get him persecuted. He wouldn't make any money, right? He was more likely to end up in jail. Who's taking that book deal? 
Do you want to write somebody, write this long history that's a ton of work just to fool somebody? Could get you arrested. Yes. Right? Christ's kingdom gives us truth. It's first of all real, but something can be real and still hollow. Right? Just because something is real doesn't mean that it's a very helpful truth. You might, you might be absolutely accurate about the price of a burrito at Chipotle, but that is not filling the soul. Well, maybe that's a bad example. When we enter the kingdom of God, when we say yes to Christ's invitation, like these essential questions of what is the nature of the world? Where did everything come from? Why do we find the world so beautiful? Why do we find the world so broken? We are gonna, if we are just building our own kingdoms, we're going to struggle to answer these. But if we listen to what the gospel tells us, that the nature of the world is that it's from God, that it's beautiful because it was made intentionally beautiful and that human beings have inherent dignity, but that there is a sickness at the soul of the world, that all of these, all of the brokenness that we see in the world of poverty, of addiction, of racism, of you name it, they are symptoms of a larger disease, a soul sickness in the world. So the, the kingdom of God gives us truth that's not only real, but it actually has explanatory power. Like, you've, you've really got to grapple with this. Think about this, guys. Anything that we believe, and if, it, if it's not telling us where we come from, if it's not explaining why the world is both beautiful and broken, it is not a very helpful truth. It is not a truth you can live by. It is, you know, perhaps on the level with the Chipotle burrito price, which, again, I wish I had chosen a different example because that's pretty good. But also, the truth of the kingdom is redemptive. It's redemptive. Did you notice this part? This, this Isaiah text is very pointed, but did you notice the end in verse 27? He says, For the people's heart has grown dull with their ears they could barely hear, their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and what? Turn and I would heal them. Right? So not only do we believe that the world is soul sick, not only do we believe that the world is broken, but that this message of the kingdom is able to heal that brokenness in us and at the very heart of the world. It's a truth that is not only real, it's a truth that is not only explanatory, but it's a truth that has a prescription that our God entered in. Now, when we hear the word kingdom, we might think of like, okay, the kingdom of God, is that America? It's like, no, it's not really like that. It's not like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's not a realm kind of place. It's a kingdom of leadership. It's everyone and everything that is brought under the leadership of Jesus, right? And when, and when that happens, when we are brought under the leadership of King Jesus, that sickness, that tear at the soul of the world is actually healed. It begins to be healed. That's why, uh, you know, instead of building our own hollow kingdom, we should accept Christ's invitation into his kingdom because it gives us truth that is real, explanatory, and redemptive. 
as we think about what that means, right, those of us who are Christ followers, like what do we do with the fact that, you know, that, that the kingdom gives us truth? Well, it's to bring everything, our values, our thinking, our morals, our politics, our understanding under Christ's kingship. We'll go into that more later. But another essential part of being human is connection. It's connection. At the uh, beginning of Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of a village called Rosetto. Rosetto's a, a, a village in Italy. It was incredibly poor, but the entire village just about emigrated to the U.S., and, and they founded a new Rosetto in, in Pennsylvania. And they basically lived as like an autonomous community. They had their own factory, their own quarry, right? And things being what they were, Italians weren't exactly welcome in other communities around, so they had to stick together. And the interesting thing is that a doctor that served this community noticed that heart disease seemed to be far lower in this town of Rosetto in Pennsylvania. At, at the time, this was, uh, you know, 150 years ago, uh, people were dropping dead of heart attacks, just like heart disease was the number one killer uh, in the U.S. at the time, and they didn't have the same extent of the problem in Rosetta. So all these doctors went and started studying what is it about this village? And they started going through death certificates and town records, and they interviewed every person. They found out not only was their heart disease rate half of the rest of the country, but they didn't find much alcoholism, they didn't find crime, they didn't find uh, suicide, that people were dying of old age and that was it. And so they were like, well, is, do they do yoga or something like that? No, no, they were, they were overweight, they were eating a bunch of beef and cheese and smoking cigarettes like everybody else. I was like, okay, well, is it something in the environment or right, like something in the water? No, because the, the towns right around them had you know, they were on par with the rest of the country. And, and the question was, what is it about Rosetta? The one difference that they discovered is how they lived. It was customary. If you were walking and saw someone you knew, you stopped and chat. Like, you know, that's what you would see the city, the, in, the, in the town square, people just stopping and talking with one another. You'd see people cooking dinners together in their backyard. This was every day, not like special occasion, let's make it happen. But it was constant. They all worked in the same factory and quarry together. They all went to the same church together. They had three generations living under one roof as a matter of course, right? It was this deep connection that they saw. That's what set Rosetta apart. Connection with one another is a human need. I dare say we're getting smarter we're getting more advanced. I'm not sure we're getting wiser. Because I can't help but notice that with every new technological innovation, it draws us away from each other. Virtual reality looks pretty cool. I'm amazed by it. But I mean, is there, is there something that does a better job of cutting you off from other people than that? Social media, all these wonderful delivery options we have, right? Every time we come up with something, it's, it, 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 it takes us further away from one another. Look at how much we move as a society, right? Like we all, I've, I've moved, you've moved. But think of what we sacrifice in terms of being rooted to a place and a people. Sometimes I think the, the, the church can play right into that, you know? When we have sort of a consumer mentality of like, 
Like church is like the movies. You know, you go, watch the movie, take off. You were with everybody watching the movie, but then you take off. And there's no community life. Christ's kingdom not only gives us truth, but it gives us connection. It gives us connection. This is a main theme of the book of Acts. That Christ's kingdom is a community. First of all, with God. Remember, all the way back in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes right, and indwells this people. First and foremost, we are in communion with God. And also, with a history. It connects us with a history. You notice in verse 23, we're not going to read the verse, but what did Paul convince them of? The kingdom? Where was he looking? He was looking all the way back in the books of Moses, saying Jesus is right here. Kingdom is right there. That is... 4,400 years ago or so. When we step into Christ's kingdom, we step into a history. It becomes ours. Not only that, when we look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's a big difference from saying, I dealt with everything Jesus did and taught. Began. The whole point of the book of Acts is that Jesus isn't done. That the story of Jesus continues through his people. And when we step into the kingdom of God, when we accept the invitation, we are connected not only with God, but with a history. We're still living the same history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. We become part of a people. Like, and this is one of the most striking features of Acts. And, and we see it right here is that this is a community that crosses the divisions of humanity. One of, the, one of the most difficult divides in the ancient world was between Jews and Gentiles. They didn't have much to do with one another, yet here is a new community of the kingdom that includes both. Not only that, we didn't talk much about this, but while Paul was doing all this and in prison, he's also like writing the books of the Bible. Right? And from this time, his, his captivity in Rome, he wrote the book of Colossians. Here's what he says in Colossians 3.11. He says, here in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's this radical new concept, this radical new way to exist. It's to be part of this community that bridges all of those divides of humanity. When we accept Christ's invitation in his kingdom, it not only gives us truth, it gives us connection. We're not just making friends at grace and peace, folks. We're building kingdom community. That is the goal here. We don't want this just to be a place where we come, take in a service, and split like we perhaps won't get all the way to Rosetto, <laughs> but this is, this is a real difference. Is, is it's, not a, it's not a kingdom. It's not a community that's based on everyone's like me, right? It's, it's a kingdom that is built around Jesus. It's a kingdom built around, it's a community built around Christ's kingdom. When we gather, think about this. When we got together this morning, we came here to commune with God. We are continuing a history that goes back to people getting together to worship Yahweh thousands and thousands of years. We're still doing it. That's our history now. 
and we bridge the divisions that divide humanity. There are so many, whether it's class or ethnicity or religious background or politics, you name it. We want to see Christ unite us across those things. So not only when we accept Christ's invitation, does it give us truth? It also gives us connection, but also it goes somewhere. And this is really key. In, um, in uh, the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, yeah, this is depressing, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> Viktor Frankl was a, a, a psychologist who, uh, who spent World War II in a concentration camp. And he, as he was observing kind of like who was able to deal with the horrible conditions of the concentration camp, the cold, the cruelty, the pain, the, the disease that was everywhere, um, he, he, he noticed a difference between people who succumbed and just died of typhus and people who, who resisted it. He noticed that people who had a reason to stay alive, something that they were moving towards, were far better able to resist it. That if someone was working on a, on a, a, a text for a book, if someone was hoping to be reunited with a loved one on the outside, it kept them going. Right? They were able to deal with it. But as soon as you know, that, that text they were working on would get seized, or they would find out that that, that loved one was actually dead, then it, he said that they would just crawl in their bunk and succumb to typhus and be dead within a few days. He saw that again and again and again that we need purpose. Christ's kingdom gives us a telos. I'm going to define the word. Don't worry if you don't know what telos means. I choose that word specifically. A telos is a final goal that guides our lives. All right? So if I have a telos of winning the Boston Marathon, right? I know it's not going to happen. Don't, don't puncture that bubble, guys. I, I'm aware. So if I have a telos to win the Boston Marathon, what does that mean for what I do right now? Right? And I'm going to go sit on the couch, eat bonbons, and, and like watch golf. Right? Is, that, is that in keeping with that telos? No. I need to buy some Band-Aids to put places and, and like get out there and run and you know, eat salads. That's, that's what I need to be doing. Not because you necessarily like running or eating salads, but because you have a telos, right? You have a goal, and you need to make choices in the present to achieve that telos. Making sense, everybody with me? All right, I'm so tired. <laughs> Christ's kingdom gives us a telos. What do you guys make of the ending? Well, I'm going to just read you 30 and 31 here. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What do you make of that ending? It's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? Where do we leave Paul? In, in house custody in Rome. Doing what? Sharing the gospel with anybody who shows up. Isn't that kind of what Paul has done since he became Paul? Exactly. It's like, uh, it's like at the end of a Bourne movie where, you know, everything explodes. He falls out of a fifth-story window, lands in the river, and he's like laying there. And you're like, oh, is he dead? Is it finished? And then he starts swimming away. It's like, no, he's, it's, it's still going, right? He's still going to do the same Jason Bourne stuff. That's the idea, is that Paul's story is not done. He's doing, in, in custody, he's doing what he did before, right? The story continues, 
That's the point of the end, the last couple verses of Acts. And, and here's the other thing. Remember I said that, that this, is, this book is a history of what Jesus Christ began to do and teach and is continued by his people? Well, put that together with the open ending. This isn't too much, right? Like our brains aren't breaking right now. It's, it's like at the beginning, it's like, hey, Jesus is still doing Jesus stuff through his people. At the end, it's like, and Paul kept on going. Do you suppose it stops? No, the, the open-ended ending was a, was a common literary device in the ancient world that, that just points to the future. We're the future, right? It points to us. It means our chapter is still being written. Think of this. At the very beginning of Acts, Jesus says, the Spirit's going to come. You guys are going to be my witnesses from Judea, from Jerusalem, where they were, to Judea, the surrounding region, to Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Where are we by the, by the time we're at the end of Acts? Think of this. Paul was the first apostle to preach to the Gentiles. By the time he's coming to Rome, for the first time, the church is coming to greet him. Paul doesn't have to plant churches. They're, they're planting ahead of him now. You get it? Our chapter is currently being written. When, when we accept Christ's invitation to his kingdom, we become part of this great mission. We, we bear the world-healing message. Right? We become part of what God is doing in undoing the consequences of sin and death. A lot of people have not heard this message. Even more people in this country believe they've heard the gospel, believe they've heard about the kingdom, but actually haven't. And that gives us a lot to do. First of all, when we step into the kingdom, we're saying yes to God working in us and healing us. When we receive the message of the kingdom, it has transformational power in you and in me. And sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it's scary, and sometimes it's hard. But if we want God to heal us to the core, we need to bring our thinking, our buying, our, our attitudes, our values, our actions, all under the lordship of King Jesus. It's to say to God, remake me. I don't want to live for my kingdom anymore. I want to live for yours. I want truth. I want connection. I want telos. I want my life to count. I don't want to build a hollow tower. I don't want to build a folly. But it also means not only healing in us, but that we become part of God's healing in the world. Think of this. In Christ's kingdom, will, 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 will there be oppression? No. Will there be poverty? No. Will there be hatred? Will there be people who are lost and isolated? No, but we have all those things, don't we? If we have a heart for the kingdom, when we encounter those things in our world, we need to bring the truth of the gospel to those things. It is absolutely appropriate for the, the church, for those who are part of Christ's kingdom, to want to see healing in those places where there's brokenness. Some of you have dedicated your lives to this. 
my question, because I don't want to give you guys a big laundry list of things to do. This is more about the fundamental orientation of our heart. Am I building my own kingdom? Where does my money go? Where's my recreation for? What's my job for? You know, everything that I do, how can it be not building my own kingdom, but being part of Christ's kingdom? Maybe you should discuss that in community group. We need to accept the invitation to Christ's kingdom. Because Christ's kingdom gives us truth, connection, and a telos. How do we do it? Well, we cannot earn it. We do not prove ourselves worthy of the kingdom. We humble ourselves and we accept the invitation. We say to Jesus, you are my savior and my king. I'm not going to live, even though, guys, recognize, we are going to fall back into the pattern of building our own kingdom. I do it all the time. We all do it all the time. This is an aspiration. But if, if we don't aspire to this, then we will end up building our own follies. It's a total reorientation from living for our own kingdom to living for Christ's kingdom. One of the great stories of this was um, a guy named William Wilberforce. If you're around Grace and Peace, you're going to hear his name bandied. But uh, he, he was an English statesman, right? He was born a child of incredible privilege and in his, his early 20s was, was an absolute party animal in, in addition to being a sleazy politician. And uh, he was this very gifted speaker, very wealthy guy, and he was best friends with William Pitt, as in like Pittsburgh, uh, the prime minister. So he was, he was at the top of the top. And he, you know, in his own memoirs, talks about how he thought his money and his time and everything was just for him. But he went on a, a carriage ride, a long carriage ride through France with a friend who was a Christian. And they read a theological book together. And just through talking with his friend, he, he, he could no longer live the way he had been living. And there was a huge transformation in Wilberforce to where this guy, who was this privileged son, this wealthy guy, became the greatest champion of social reform in the history of England. Not only did he and his, his, uh, his, his friends um, work to eradicate the slave trade and slavery, but, but to, uh, to, to provide universal education and all sorts of reforms. And, and this guy who was born at the top died penniless practically because he didn't, see, he didn't see his resources and his giftings and everything as there to build his own kingdom, but to be part of what God was doing in the world. The book of Acts ends with this invitation for us to accept Christ's invitation to his kingdom. Let's respond.